Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote in my Saturday column in The Times that, whisper it, Brexit is boring. Uh, I wonder if it was just me who found talking about Brexit so dull I was counting down the days to the next Lib Dem conference. Well, apparently not. Even cabinet ministers privately tell me it is a grind and they wish they were doing something, anything more productive on the domestic front. Now, of course, Brexit is massively important politically, economically and culturally, but it is also slow and bureaucratic. So in a bid to work out what is going on and convince me that it really isn't very boring, I've assembled a crack team of experts to answer your questions. I'm joined in the studio by The Times policy editor Oliver Wright and political reporter Henry Zeffman, who also write the brilliant Times Brexit briefing. Go to thetimes.co.uk, click on my account and then find it in my bulletins. Plus, we've got Jill Rutter, former number 10 and Treasury policy guru, who is now programme director of the Institute for Government. Welcome to you all. Podcast listeners and readers of the Red Box Morning email sent in loads of questions. We're going to try and get through as many as we can, and I promise it really won't be boring. Uh, well, not too much. Now, before we get going, let's start with you, Ollie. Can you just sum up in a few short, fun, exciting sentences, where are we currently on the long road that we call Brexit? Three words. In a mess. To expand a little bit, you know, the government is facing a rebellion in the House of Commons, which will take place over the next couple of months where they could lose a series of key votes which will undermine Theresa May's authority still further. The talks are ostensibly stuck. We were supposed to have a resolution and move on to trade and transition in October, then it's December, and now people are talking about March, so that isn't making much progress. And at the meantime, you've got a government which is falling apart at the seams and unrelated to Brexit, but all of which has an impact on it. Uh, We're not in a good place. Good. Well, against that backdrop, let's get stuck into the questions. One that came up, um, lots and lots of stuff. There's one here from Bob Mole, who said he supported leave, but now worries that when all the shouting is done, we won't, in all reality, actually leave. He says the whole pack of cards will fall, the government will have to go to the country, and a new government will win on a manifesto of staying in. We had similar questions from Peter Taylor, Neil Taylor, I'm not sure if they're related, and Ben Marks, 
who says lots of MPs are acting like cowards. He, he'd like them to stop Brexit. So let's start with you, Henry. Is it possible that we don't end up leaving? Uh, it's certainly possible. I wouldn't say it's likely. I mean, on Bob's uh, specific scenario, I don't think the government will have to go to the country uh, for reasons unrelated to Brexit, which is that Conservative MPs are terrified of the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. And under uh, the mechanism of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, they would have to vote uh, like turkeys uh, for that particular Christmas. And, you know, even uh, a soft Brexiter, to use a term like, say, Anna Soubry, uh, would not necessarily vote for a general election, even if it might reverse Brexit, because she'd fear she'd lose her seat to the Labour Party. Um, so uh, I'm not convinced that that is the way in which Brexit might not happen. I think it would it would rather be a sort of stealthier process of incremental delay, which would eventually take you to a point uh, where we haven't quite left and there is a general election. But no, I think I think we are still far more likely to leave than to remain. There's very little evidence uh, of a significant shift in public opinion. And I think an intel- until and unless you get that, uh, we're going to continue down the path we're on. What about you, Jill? Do you think there's a possibility we don't leave? There's always a possibility we do anything, actually, at the moment, because politics <laughs> is in such a weird, weirded out state and it's sort of slightly foolish to predict things. But everybody at the moment is on course to leave. Uh, we don't know quite how we leave, quite what leave will look like, uh, because one of the big sort of things that has happened since the Prime Minister's Florence speech is all this focus on a standstill transition. So a possible couple of years when we might no longer send people off to the council, we might have our guy thrown out of the commission, we won't have European Parliament elections, but that to other intents and purposes, it looks pretty much like we're still in the EU. So that's possible. Be possible that during that time, if we haven't actually left, if we've extended the Article 50 period, we might uh, might change our minds. But at the moment, yeah, remember it's only six, seven months ago, no, nine months ago, that Parliament voted overwhelmingly to trigger Article 50 and give notification. And remember that has that built-in default that unless lots of people do other things, we do leave at 11 p.m. on 29th March 2019. You're mentioning Article 50 there. Phil Williams sent in a question. He said, rather than having very awkward, fraught transitional arrangements, would it not be far, far more practical to and offer greater certainty to simply extend the Article 50 period by another two years? He has an ulterior motive for that, though. He says, is it not then inconceivable that within the extended Article 50 period, circumstances would change so dramatically that it would be entirely apposite to have a further referendum? So so the idea of this sort of delay, 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 delay is all the sort of hard remain... Uh, camp who hope that something will turn up to shift public mood, Ollie. Yeah, I mean, I think he's right. I think the easiest way by far to have a no-change transition is to extend the Article 50 process. And, you know, it's infinitely simpler than what the government is proposing at the moment. But they have a problem. They have a significant group of their own MPs for whom the one thing they want more than anything else is to say on March 29th, 2019, at 11pm, we're out. So we're contorting ourselves into a ridiculous situation where we've got this sort of no-change transition which throws up far more questions than it answers. Um, It would be much simpler to say, hang on, we're not ready, we need a couple of more years. I think the European Commission and the European states would give us that, but politically it is utterly impossible for May to deliver. I thought it was striking at the weekend, Theresa May wrote an article in one of the Sunday newspapers ahead of the EU withdrawal bill being in the Commons, and her big announcement in it was writing out the date we were actually leaving because this is so totemic for the hard Brexiteers who 
worry that we do never leave. But you see, this is this is the thing. You say Brexit is boring, but there is infinite humour in even the day. <laughs> so why are we leaving at 11pm and not midnight? Well, we're leaving at 11pm and not midnight because we have to follow Brussels time. And it will be midnight in Brussels when we leave and 11pm in the UK. But, but the fact that the government felt that they needed to restate the date that we had all assumed anyway from you know it being two years after the day we triggered it uh just shows how anxious they are about those uh eurosceptic conservative mps and speaks to why we can't extend the article 50 window uh you know theresa may is probably going to have to make some concessions this week in fact we've already had a, a concession although it's not particularly been uh welcomed by the sort of pro-remain conservatives which is to have primary legislation uh, for the withdrawal uh, agreement uh you know they they basically felt that in advance of making those concessions they needed to pat the eurosceptics on the head and say don't worry we're still leaving on this day you can still have your fireworks exactly on, yeah. uh, fireworks over big ben whether or not it's bonging is another question <laughs> um jill ronald freeman asked does the government agree with lord kerr that his article 50 trigger is revocable because there's been this big debate about whether or not what we did in... Well, in Can we March, go back on March that? is when we wrote our letter. So Lord Kerr says, well, all you did was notify under this. And you can always say, yeah, we've had second thoughts. We can denotify. I don't know whether denotify is a word, but if it were, we could do that. Um, we haven't seen the government allegedly has legal advice on this. We haven't, various people have been trying to get hold of it. Uh, we haven't seen it. The government always uses the formula in response, not that this is legally wrong, but that we have no intention of, in, of revoking Article 50. So you could say, you know, having drafted these sorts of things in government where you watch your words quite carefully, that suggests they might have advice. And actually, when we've talked to people from Europe, they always say, ultimately, that's a political decision. If the UK wanted to sort of go back and say, oh my God, we have just realised the folly of our ways and that was all a big mistake. Donald Tusk has made clear that we could reverse. Lots of other people have said, Macron even has said, said, said I think, mm. yeah, we could always go back. The door is so that would ultimately yeah. you know, be the UK could say, we want to come back. Then there'd be a political decision. The interesting thing, I think, is, and this is you know, thing, another reason why Brexit might not be so boring, was if anyone decided to challenge a UK revocation, where would it end up? It would end up probably with our very good friends at the European Court of Justice, uh, who we've been love-bombing for years. So that would be great. <laughs> um, the divorce bill, that's one of the things which is sort of the big sticking points, and it, it is at least something that people can understand, because it's the, the amount of money that we have to pay to get out of the club. Um, we had loads of questions on this. Bob Patterson, Ruth Edis, David Street, and Wilkinson asked on Twitter, when are we going to see the Brexit bill itemised by the EU? In our itemised response, we are kept in the dark. Never. <laughs> in a word. Um, it's not in either side's interest to spell out what the final bill will be. Um, it will be up to us as journalists to try and put a figure on it. Um, but it won't be. No one will write a cheque. That's the one thing you can say absolutely confidently. Not even a big like comedy one. No, with David Davidson Barnier posing with <laughs> 60, 60 billion or different cheques. No. Um, I mean, some of this money won't be paid out for decades. Um, there will be about 20 billion that's paid out over the, the two years of the transition period, which is roughly what we pay to stay in Europe anyway, and then the rest will be paid out in dribs and drabs over the years. Um, 
it sounds big numbers. Um, I think people are getting overly worked up about it. In fact, I think even some of the Brexiteers don't care too much about it. They are merely using it to try and strengthen David Davis's hand so that he can go to Michel Barnier and say, well, I can't possibly do this because my own side won't ever back it. Actually, they're more relaxed. What they want is to be out on March 29th, 2019, and that's it. And, and, and even uh, if we do have a sort of relatively hard Brexit, the government still wants and the EU is likely to still accept Britain paying to remain part of or associated with various EU agencies. And that's going to mean a, some sort of annual bill. And when you just work the sort of divorce bill annual payments into that, uh, before long, it's going to be pretty indistinguishable what we're paying as a price for leaving and what we're paying uh, as, as a sort of as, as a function of the new relationship we have after leaving. Jill, Ollie painted a, a picture at the beginning of it all being a terrible mess and it wasn't going terribly well. I mean, there is a, there is a, a, a counter-argument that says that if, as soon as she'd become Prime Minister, Theresa May had said, yes, we are going to give Brussels something in the region of £50 billion. Pounds. Uh, yes, we are going to have a two-year transition period. There'd have been absolute uproar. She probably wouldn't have made it to the summer. And this, whether by skill or by accident, by not doing anything for long periods of time, the mood of Brexiteers has changed to the point that they do now accept transition period they do now accept the bill and it is interesting that now their focus is just about leaving rather than necessarily dying in a ditch over the, the process of leaving i think what you're showing actually is that the sort of prime minister is sort of fighting negotiating on two fronts so at one front she's negotiating with the eu you know they see david davis popping off or whatever time to time uh, for his sort of monthly uh, chat-ins with michel barnier but at the same time the prime minister is basically sort of having to wage a slight war of attrition uh, against her backbenchers, her cabinet, etc., to try and get them to agreed positions on things. And I think it's quite interesting to see how the Prime Minister is having to play those two things. And actually, you could say, given the position she's in, it's quite remarkable she's moved people to getting agreement to lots of the things you're doing. And you could see, you know, you put out 20 billion, test the water, 20 billion, OK, you've got them to 20 billion. And then that becomes the baseline. So we say that the sort of EU pockets that and asks for more. But in a sense, the Prime Minister says, OK, well, we've accepted 20 billion now. Another 10 billion on top of that's not too much more, is it? So you've sort of got this sort of process of sort of groping, uh, maybe that's not a word to use these days, <laughs> moving towards an agreement, sort of gradually sort of, you know, climbing up. But it's uh, it's quite a frustrating process. And it's very unclear. I mean, the bit that I would slightly disagree with, Ollie, I mean, the EU did set out, it didn't put any numbers on it, but did they, they did set out the longest ever laundry list of items that the UK could be seen to contribute to. And I think... It's quite interesting, and it's quite interesting for the dynamic of the negotiations, because Barnier had a list, and then others chopped in and put in more things onto that list, particularly the French and the Poles were asking for more on agriculture. It even got to things like meeting the bill for teachers' salaries in the English school in Brussels and things like that. So they were clearly sort of, you know, doing a typical tactic, which is you put in absolutely everything, uh, you expect to end up spitting some sort of difference and that's where you end up. But that was quite uh, what I think one former senior UK official described as throwing the kitchen sink at the divorce bill negotiations. Henry, when you and I were in Brussels in August, Michel Barnier threw up a whole load of slightly random stuff, including green infrastructure, which it took you and I a whole afternoon to try and get to the bottom of what this means. Um, so his complaint was that David Cameron had signed up to spend money on green infrastructure across Europe. What does that mean? So so this is this is an example of when when you get down into the weeds, some of it does seem a bit a bit ridiculous. So this is things like wildlife bridges, uh, which are sort of building green paths uh, for for badgers to walk across. 
uh, to and, cross a motorway, and, 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 or, yeah, yeah. And, and and sort of uh, green roofs on buildings so that so that uh, wildlife can can flourish. The new environmentalist Michael Gove would surely approve of that spending. <laughs> well, indeed, but he'd like it to be possibly, spent yeah, by him in the department. Possibly of not in Lithuania. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, right, let's, uh, in a moment, we'll come back with some more questions on uh, what does it mean for young voters? Uh, what about cross-party talks? And does anybody know what Labour's position is? Uh, we'll try and answer, or at least attempt to try and answer some of those after these very short messages. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Well, thank you for sticking with us. I'm joined by Oliver Wright, Henry Zeffman and Jill Rutter. Let's get back to your questions. Uh, David Short asks, would a mature democracy faced with a reasonably even split of opinion in the country about leaving the EU and a variety of opinions on how to proceed not have found a better way of moving forward on a more consensual basis in the past path that Mrs May chose? Maybe an all-party advisory convention? Give them 12 months to at least agree on a few facts and issues to present to the public. Good idea, bad idea, Henry? I do get a bit wound up when when people suggest, oh, you know, why won't people uh, get around the table from other parties and, and work this out together? I mean, that does basically happen. It's called the House of Commons, uh, and there is even a big table in the middle of it. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think the problem is is the mechanism of you know British parliamentary democracy. I think there's plenty of problems in how Theresa May chose to approach it, sort of tonally. I don't think that's a cross party thing. I think that was her failing to reach out uh, to to many Tory voters, in fact, uh, who'd voted Remain, and you see that in the results in. Battersea and Canterbury and all sorts of seats uh, that ought to vote Conservative and gave her a bit of a bloody nose um, in June. I mean, it's interesting. There was some hint soon after the election that the government did want to proceed on a more cross-party basis. So they made Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary, a privy councillor. So apart from that meaning that he's now the right honourable Keir Starmer... Uh, it means that Sir, he can be briefed. Well, I'm sorry, the right honourable Sir Keir Starmer. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of other letters, QC and so on. Uh, apart from that, you know that 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 means that he can be briefed on uh, confidential parts of the talks. Uh, but there's little evidence that the government has actually used that as a way to sort of bind Labour in in a way that some people thought they might. Jill, can a cross-party working? I mean, it's a it's a massive issue with long-term implications for the country. But on the other hand, the Tories got us into this mess. 
isn't it up to them to sort it out? Why, I, why I would actually the think Labour that the Prime Minister could. I was uh, my counterfactual experiment was to think what might David Cameron have done if he sort of you know fought the election and ended up with the result that the Prime Minister ended up with, and you could imagine to sort of paraphrase that the day after he would have come out and said, look. Uh, this is an issue facing all of us, you know, members of both our parties, supporters of both our parties voted to leave. But actually, I now want to work with others to make sure we leave in the best way possible and make a big, open, comprehensive, generous, whatever those words were, offer to the others to join in some sort of cross-party negotiations and stuff like that. You know, Keir Starmer could have some trips uh, trips in David Davis's Eurostar to Brussels and things like that. And I think that would have been quite an interesting thing to try to do. Not least because the government is now facing so many... Oli was talking about the problems it's facing in Parliament. Quite interesting. Go back to the language it used when it published its white paper on the repeal bill. It sort of said oh, we're going to have to you know, work with Parliament to make sure we can balance the need for proper scrutiny with getting all this legislation through. And there was supposed to be this great dialogue between the Department and Parliament to try and do this. And none of that happened. They promised big things to the devolves when Theresa May went on her sort of quick whistle-stop tour straight after becoming Prime Minister. But then the you know, Joint Ministerial Committee in Europe never met for ages and ages and ages, and now they're trying to repair some of that sort of damage. So I think you could have had a much more inclusive cross-party approach. It might have been rebuffed, but I think if you were rebuffed, you're in a stronger position than if you never made the offer. So I suppose it falls to you then, um, Ollie, to answer the question. Gordon Stuth asked on Twitter, what is Labour's position on leaving the single market given their manifesto statement on immigration? And I've had lots of people sent in questions basically saying, where does Labour stand on Brexit? Thanks for that hospital pass. <laughs> um, you know, here's a confession. I don't really know. Um, their position is contradictory in all sorts of places. But to their credit, they would say, well, we don't actually have to have a position. Um, our job is to critique the government's position. It's not up for us at this stage to create a manifesto of exactly what we would do. I mean, normal people would say, well, actually, it is, because if you want to be elected, <laughs> we really want to know. But they're grappling with all the same issues that the Conservative Party are grappling with. Um, effectively, they also have a, we want our cake and eat it. Um, but the one thing that they're prepared to concede more on that the Conservatives aren't is on freedom of movement. And I think that could potentially be where Labour's position could unlock the process. The Tories cannot concede on anything about freedom of movement. Labour probably could, which would allow you to have some form of close relationship, possibly stay inside the customs union and the single market if they so choose. Um, and they're also not so hung up on this sort of, you know, this this vision of free trading, global trotting, Liam Fox loving Britain that, um, that buccaneering, buccaneering, buccaneering is the word, the word they use when, whenever challenged on what exactly is this going to mean? How are we going to make up the losses? They just say, well, we're going to be a buccaneering nation. Is it? <laughs> Dressing up as a pirate is going to solve solve all of the problems. Um, uh, let's move on. We had quite a lot of questions about where are we actually going? And I think one of the slight criticisms is it all gets so bogged down in the. The, the day-to-day process of um, the talks and the shenanigans in Parliament. Where are we going? Richard Cousins said it would be. It would appear there is currently an almost myopic focus on the minutiae of, of the Brexit process, with no apparent reference to the strategic environment in which Brexit will take place. Uh, Keith Smith, who says he backs Leave uh, on grounds of both sovereignty and the EU budget, he asked why the pro-Leave side not highlighting the arguments they did before. That you know, where were the positives? There is a risk that the sort of national conversation about Brexit has become almost entirely negative because it's 
quite complicated and difficult to do without talking about the, the, the benefits that might come afterwards. Jill? Well, I think it's partly because the process is, is quite time-consuming, quite difficult. It's partly because actually the government itself doesn't know where it wants to go. Uh, so what do we see in Florence? We know that we don't like the EEA, uh, the European Economic Area, so being like Norway. Uh, although that's on offer. Barnier keeps on saying if we want to do that, that's on offer. We don't like that because it means uh, quite a close relationship with the ECJ and it means accepting freedom of movement. Um, we don't think Canada is good enough for us. So just a conventional sort of style free trade deal. The Prime Minister said that's too restrictive, not appropriate for the deep and special relationship. But actually, one of the things that's really interesting, and I think it'd been really interesting if uh, in October the European Council turned around and said, actually, you know, yeah, that's sufficient progress. Now, would the UK like to post in its proposal for the future partnership that you've been talking about for ages? And could we have it by Monday or Tuesday? Because actually, that's the conversation that seems to be not having. So it's quite <laughs> difficult to paint a picture when you know the cabinet itself hasn't agreed on one. And I think uh, on the second question about why aren't we sort of going back to sovereignty and the EU budget, I think actually... You know, people do keep on banging on about that. I mean, the sort of Boris article in the Telegraph was trying to sort of restate the case for Brexit. Um, uh, Michael Gove, I think, was saying at the weekend, wasn't he, that he wanted some of the saving to go into the NHS. Simon Stevens, of course, made his pitch for £350 million a week to go to the NHS. Um, not sure he was the strongest ever Leave voter, but uh, he may have been. Um, so <laughs> I think I... people are talking about it. But, yeah, this is a grinding, difficult process to get from here to there. And the sunlit uplands, you know, uh, do depend on us having worked out what our future relationship is with the EU. Ollie Story on Twitter asked, if Brexit does go ahead... Boris should be moved to the Department of Health and pressurised every week by doctors and nurses for the extra £350 million he promised. It is amazing how Boris Johnson keeps returning to this figure because he's obviously very hurt by the suggestion that he lied in some way to voters and yet it's a sort of, it's a scab he can't stop picking. Yeah, it is. And it's a difficult one because, you know, it, it is hard to come to any other conclusion when you listen and look at the facts of it that he did lie. The £350 million was just... A statistical nonsense. Yes, sure, there was a figure, but it just wasn't that. And I don't quite understand why Boris keeps on picking the scab, as you put it. Um, it's partly, I suppose, because you've got a man who is extremely vain. The one thing that drives him in politics is people liking him and wanting his ambition is still, you know, still hasn't been fulfilled. And he feels that if he runs away from it, then, you know, maybe the people will assume that he did lie. So he keeps on going back to it. And, you know, it's the old the old Nazi thing. You know, if you tell a lie, keep on, keep on going. I spoke to somebody who used to work for Nick Clegg who said that they had exactly the same conversations when he was in government. They kept going back to tuition fees. They kept thinking, oh, I've got it. I've got the idea. I've finally found the argument which is going to win it. And it never does. And it just reminds people that you, you misled them all over again. Uh, Henry, there's a question from James Carey in Wiltshire who says, as we enter the final 12 months of negotiation before ratification, are we more or less likely to end up with a non-bespoke deal? So not Canada or Norway. Uh, we're more likely to end up with a non-spoke deal than when we enter the negotiations. Um, I think I think we are I think we are more 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 likely to end up with a bespoke deal. Actually, um, I think as Jill says, we have rejected all of the uh, off-the-shelf options, uh, and so you know it's perfectly clear that the only available uh, available option is some sort of 
uh, um, some sort of bespoke uh, bespoke deal, uh, whether it's the kind of comprehensive, deep-reaching, special bespoke deal that Theresa May wants, or rather something which sort of gets uh, sorted out very quickly towards the end as it becomes clear that Britain is hurtling towards the exit uh, without any sort of agreement. So, you know, maybe they sort of lock in what we have agreed so far, so that's some stuff on citizens' rights, uh, you know, something to keep planes flying, so some sort of open skies agreement, uh, something to keep ports open uh, without punitive checks. Uh, I think that's the kind of bespoke deal that's more likely as we enter the final 12 months rather than a Canada plus, plus, plus. Okay, let's um, move on. Sarah Cullum says, anyone who feeds a family will know that the price of butter has risen astronomically. I believe there's a shortage because British farmers, as a result of the low pound, can make more profit by selling their butter abroad. Is this a hint of what will happen to the price of other things as well as butter when Brexit really kicks in? Anyone know anything about the price of butter? No, but, you know, you know something about the pound, and I think it's perhaps less that people want to sell their butter abroad, and uh, simply that prices are going to go up. You know, it's a, it's a simple fact of economics. If the pound is weak, everything that you import is going to be more expensive, and goods these days, you can say, well, we'll buy more stuff made in Britain. Well, actually, if you look at the way in which goods are made, and even agriculture, you see a huge amount of crossing between borders and crossing currencies. You know, something like butter, you may have the milk delivered in one place. It might go from the Republic of Ireland over to the north to be turned into butter, then sent back somewhere else to be packaged. You know, these processes that have been built up over time are monumentally complicated. And that's why, really, I mean, Brexit is interesting, because it affects every bit of the fabric of our life, every bit of the fabric of our economics. And Brexit isn't just one thing, it's a thousand things. And it's going to affect us all for years to come, frankly, for many, many years after we've actually left. One of the things that's quite interesting is that uh, is that the EU does trade deals and cuts tariffs on most manufactured goods. It's done that with Canada, it's done that with Korea, do that with Japan. The EU is much more protectionist on agriculture. So there's a really, really interesting question. What sort of trade deal is the EU up for with the UK on agriculture? Is it actually going to do something which allows us to maintain zero tariffs? Because if we start slapping tariffs on agricultural produce, that's really bad news for British farming. It's quite bad news for French farming because we've got a small trade deficit in agricultural products. But it's a really interesting question because they haven't done that in any of their trade deals before. So if you're looking for one of the pluses we might want on the so-called Canada Plus, uh, then we might want that. And it's quite interesting. Even the EEA countries, so even Norway... Uh, pays tariffs on agricultural goods. They don't have a sort of free trade deal in agriculture. And if you've ever been to Norway, food is very, very expensive. Henry, it's interesting. One of the the, uh, things about Sarah's question is it highlights how when you talk about customs unions and single markets, they seem like vague concepts. But once you start talking about the price of your shopping going up, People have a very strong reaction to that. And that that is, I mean, we talked (laughs) earlier about whether Brexit might not happen. That is strategically the way that continuity remainers uh, might be able to shift some public opinion which is to directly trace things that are happening in people's lives after the referendum to the result of that referendum and I think as time goes on they might be more and more able to do that I mean one other thing as well as as well as uh, agriculture it's also fishing uh, has really important really important effects so you know one thing that the government wants is to expel some sort of EU vessels from Britain's fishing waters uh, one of the problems with that is that as a corollary the eu might say uh, okay but it's going to be harder for you to export fish here but britain catches a lot british 
fish uh, fishermen catch a lot of fish that we don't eat here. So we, we catch loads of cuttlefish, uh, which we export to the EU. Now, you know, there's, there's two options. Either we eat loads of cuttlefish and it's on the shelves of, you know, every supermarket, or the price of the fish that we do want to eat goes up. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that we are going to see playing out probably once we've left. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more a case of uh, whether we're going to have to change the deal afterwards or try and go back in. But, you know, that, that is go- people are going to start noticing. Just funny, because we, we are um, running out of time. Julie Linehan asked a question more about the political impact of all this. She says, is, is the Tory fixation with Europe over many years something which chimes with the older Eurosceptic voter, but causing a long-term alienation decline in its recruitment of a potential new generation of voters? Will young people ever forgive the Tories for Brexit? Ollie? I think that's a really, really good question. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think we know the answer to it sitting here now. But I think if you were betting, you'd have to say, yes, there is a very, very substantial chance that, you know, the Tories lose power um, and suffer the consequences of their fixation with Europe. The only thing which you would put perhaps in the in the opposite case for that is, well, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is a huge experiment. And if Labour came to power, what would they do with the economy? How would voters feel? Would they feel betrayed, but for different things? Um, will this whole situation unpredictable situation that we're in now over the long period just further damage confidence in our system of government and politics but even if the corbyn experiment goes terribly uh, i don't think it's so much the eu itself but what brexit and then theresa may piling in so vocally behind the sort of brexit cause it's what that says to young people uh, about the conservatives values that i think is going to be very hard to shift i mean david cameron uh, you know, in 2015, went into the general election vowing to hold a referendum on the EU. But young people still voted for him in far greater number than they then voted for Theresa May two years later. What was the difference? It was that David Cameron, in general, in the demeanour and the way that he addressed these issues, uh, suggested that he was, you know, vaguely OK with the 21st century. Theresa May, <laughs> uh, you know, has an image of, of Britain or stri- conjures an image of Britain that is far more 1950s. And, and, and the further Tories go down that path, it'll be much, much, much harder for them to walk back. Jill, 20 years ago, said that the issue of Europe and sleaze had killed off the Tory party and they'd never get back into power again. People are always a bit too quick to to sort of sign the death notice of a political party. Well, I was actually in number 10 when, uh, uh, under John Major, I was in the policy unit, uh, not as a politician, as a civil servant, uh, and it was pretty debilitating then. Um, the splits about Europe were extremely debilitating, the sort of sleaze, you know, nothing to do with Major himself, but that was a sort of, you know backdrop to actually a government that did quite a lot to put the economy post ERM exit onto quite a reasonable footing and hand over uh, not a bad legacy to the incoming Labour government, uh, which then of course was in power for 13 years. So you can come back, but it takes quite some time to come back. It obviously took Labour 18 years to come back after the sort of, you know, Wilson Callaghan experiment led to uh, Mrs Thatcher. But I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting on that point is I went for the first time ever inside the Secure Zone at the Conservative Party conference and there seemed to be three things that were energising the party there. You know, the things you couldn't get into were really very sort of Brexity events. Those were standing room only. You couldn't get in the door. We always left it too late 
to get in. The second thing were clearly the sort of auditioning of potential leadership candidates, you know, whether it was Ruth Davidson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, James Cleverley, all these sort of people who are potentially things. And the third one was a lot of hand-wringing sessions on how do we appeal mm. to young voters, I think probably populated by quite different people <laughs> to the people who were going to the, you know, how can we make sure Brexit really, really happens in quite a sort of hard way. Uh, so I think the party clearly recognises it's got an issue. The question is, can it do anything about it? And maybe the budget next week is going to be the first first sight of whether actually they can try and reorientate. Well, that seems a good point to um, wind it up and remind you that we're doing a uh, budget special podcast after um, Philip Hammond has unveiled whatever it is that he's going to do. Some people are saying it's going to be big and bold and then uh, and then I read that allies of Philip Hammond are saying, I don't know where they've got that from. So uh, we wait to see uh, what that is all about. My thanks to Ollie, Henry and Jill. As ever, you can sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. And if you're a Times subscriber or registered user, you can get the Brexit briefing as well. Like I said, just look in my account and then go to my bulletin. So that comes out every Thursday by Ollie and Henry. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device and leave reviews there and I'll try and read out some in the next couple of weeks. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.